If you have your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 28. We're going to take a break from Matthew. We've been in Matthew since like December. So we're just going to take a summer break for a little bit uh, and spend some time uh, doing this series that I'm calling Never Hindered. And, and I'll get into that and explain it a little bit more. But just as I was thinking this week, have you ever had someone say something to you so ridiculous that it just left you a little bit dazed, confused, maybe even fr- frustrated? And I'm not talking like ridiculous and some self-conspired, ridiculous lie that they're trying to defend. It's not like just the kid with chocolate all over their mouth. And you say, did you eat that chocolate? And they're like, no. Yes, that's ridiculous. That's, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about those things that people say with the best heart and really the best intentions. That they're, they're trying to be helpful and encouraging. But the words just don't seem to line up with the reality that you're living. And it kind of leaves you wondering, what, what are you even talking about? And I had a whole different introduction, but I thought, if, if I'm going to preach a sermon post the birth of my son, uh, I should at least tell a story about it, right? I mean, that's what you're all here for. I know, no, I'm just joking. Uh, so I thought I'd show you a picture. This is Haley and I. Uh, as we were starting the labor process, we were so happy. We're like, this is going to be easy. We're going to do this. Things changed drastically. I'm not going to show you any other pictures past this one. But we definitely progressed in, into some pain. Now, as we were getting into this, Haley and I had uh, we'd taken some birthing classes. And uh, I had really tried my best. Uh, if you know me, I'm a planner. I try to plan everything I can out to be as prepared as possible. And so I had really done a lot of research and study about how to be a good like birthing partner and coach. And what it goes into being helpful while you know, your wife is sitting there struggling in more pain than what I will ever experience in the entirety of my life. And like, how do I play a part in helping her with that? So I was rolling through that coaching advice, you know, staying calm. I'm reminding her to relax. I'm giving her affirmation. You're doing great. You've got this. Deep breaths, intentional relaxation. We're rolling with it as it comes. And everything's going, you know, more or less well. It's it's definitely some hard parts, but we're doing pretty good. She's listening. Everything's great. And then it gets to the part that the nurse comes in and says, I think you're ready to push. And all of a sudden, the spotlights come on, and the doctor comes in, and there's like 12 other people that are running around doing 100 different things, and things escalate to like a 12.5 on a scale of 1 to 10. And it is intense. That's the best word I can think to describe it. And all of a sudden, the phrase, deep breaths, we're relaxing, it comes across like going to a middle school playground and walking up to middle schools and like, totally tubular, dudes, like it's... It's a phrase from decades ago that has no meaning there, here and now. Like, that's what that feels like. And so I'm racking my mind trying to come up with how do I help her right now? How, how do I get her just engaged and ready and participating? And so as Haley's in the throes of pushing and I'm holding a foot and she's all of that stuff, I, I say, he, he's here. Meaning, like he's almost here. Like we're, we're at the point of arrival We're closer than we've ever been. He's here. Which was apparently the most ridiculous thing I could have ever said. Because he wasn't here. There was still more to to come. And with the best intentions, it doesn't matter because to Haley's dismay, he is not literally here yet at this point. And so between pushes, she looks at me with a sweaty forehead and panty breath and says, don't tell me he's here if he's not here yet. So birthing tip, just just from me, 
Don't say he's here. Until the baby is out crying on mom's chest, don't say he's here. Just piece of advice. But, you know, like it wasn't that I was trying to trick her. Uh, it wasn't that I was trying to lie to her or anything like that. But the, the thing came off, the thing that I said came off as ridiculous because it did not line up with the reality that she was experiencing. I still have to push. He's not here. Generally, when we hear people do this, our standard reaction is to kind of ignore them, write them off as delusional, maybe at worst, or uh, lying or, or, or mistaken at best. And even when people mean well by it, we tend to just kind of ignore them. So you come home from a really hard day's work and someone says, well, at least you weren't doing this, this, this and this. And you're like, well, that's helpful, but maybe. But you didn't experience the day I experienced. That's ridiculous. Don't don't say stuff like that. It doesn't line up with the reality of the day I just had that you know nothing about. So what happens then when we come across a phrase like this in the Bible? What happens when one of the biblical authors seem to do this, when they write something that just doesn't seem like it lines up with everything else they've written about, with the reality they've been talking about? And I think this is exactly what happens at the very end of Luke's book of Acts. The very end of Acts, Luke says something ridiculous. Now, you may not pick up on it, but I'll see if I can clue you in. Very end of Acts, chapter 28, verse 30 and 31. As Luke's concluding this story of the early church, he says this. Paul stayed two whole years in his own rented house. And by that, he means house prison cell. And he welcomed all who visited him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So did you catch it? It feels really good. I mean, what Luke writing here feels like you want to give a victory cry of, yeah, this is amazing. But if you take just a few seconds and think about it, what Luke says here is utterly ridiculous. It does not line up with everything else he's written. A couple reasons why. Number one, first, this isn't an ending. There's no resolve to this story of Acts. Luke, surely there's more to be told. I mean, Luke says Paul stayed there for two whole years. Luke, what happened in those two years worth of house prisons? Surely something worth writing about is going on in those two years. I mean, every other time in this book when Paul or Peter or John have been trapped or imprisoned or shipwrecked, it's followed by some story of divine rescue and miracle. But rather than expounding on the months of ministry from a Roman house prison, Luke just puts a period and submits the assignment that any professor would look at and say, you didn't really finish this in time, did you? No conclusion. No goodbyes, no in summary, no inspirational final story. I mean, this is that obscure indie movie your weird friend made you watch that it felt like halfway through they just rolled the credits and you're like, why did I spend my time watching that movie? Why does Luke end it that way? And then second, on top of that, the claim itself is contextually ridiculous. Christ, he began to teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, God, sorry, let me just read verse 31, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. That word without hindrance is just one word in the Greek, it's akalustos, and it's from the word kaluo, which means to prevent or to forbid. So in Luke 11, Jesus is in deep with the Pharisees and they're debating. And Jesus says, hey, you have taken away the keys of knowledge and you have kaluo. You have prevented other people from getting in. 
It's a message of prevention with the prefix a on the front of it, which we still use in English, a prefix that means not atypical, asymmetrical, apolitical, atheistic. So not hindering, not preventing, not stopping. Luke ends his biography of the church with one word, one idea. Nothing hinders the church. Nothing prevents things from moving forward. And we go to let out the victory cry until we put it within its context. Because in its context, it really feels like saying, he's here while the mom is still pushing. Luke, what's, what's going on? I mean, is this a joke? Paul's been in prison now after a corrupt legal nightmare for years, seemingly stopping a revival in its tracks. And that stands in stark contrast to the beginning of Acts when Luke talks about thousands being saved and ushers the phrase a couple times, God added to their numbers daily. We've moved from this to Paul is in prison and not much is happening. He gets shipwrecked and somehow against all odds he survives only to fall right back under house arrest in Rome where he eventually dies according to church history by, or church tradition by beheading. And although he's not in literal shackles, the champion of church planting is stuck living with a Roman guard not allowed to exit the front door of his own house. And you can say, well, he's inviting people in to preach. And that's true and that's good. But if you jump just a little bit back in the verse prior to this, um, verse, verse 24, some were persuaded by what he said, but others did not believe. They come into his house, they listen to him. And then 25, disagreeing amongst themselves, they began to leave after Paul made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right. And he quotes from Isaiah. I don't know about you, but that doesn't tend to convey the idea of a successful invitation time of a church. If today I get to the end and I wrap up and I say, hey, guys, this invitation, here's what we're going to do. And instead, what ends up happening is there's just a big disagreement and most of you leave. That's not what we would call a successful church service. And on top of that, that's not to mention the historical context that Luke doesn't even include that we know about Emperor Nero's bloodthirst for Christians displayed by the Roman historian Tacitus, who mentioned that Nero would feed Christians to lions as a form of entertainment during gladiator matches and often lit his garden parties with the burning carcasses of Christian human torches. Luke has the audacity to look at the world surrounding him. To note the incredible highlights of the church, then document the downfall of the church into institutionalized prevention methods like arrest, trial, and persecution, and then say the gospel was preached without hindrance. Really? How? How, Luke? How could you seriously suggest that the gospel was preached without hindrance when he's just got done telling you, when you've just got done telling us the whole slew of stories about how the gospel was hindered? Luke, it feels a little bit ridiculous. But I think there's a good answer. And the answer lies in the textual parallels between the gospel of Luke and this second work of Luke we call Acts. Now, there's been lots of wonderful scholarly studies comparing these two. And if you're interested, you can look up Luke-Acts parallels and find tons of stuff on it. We don't have time to get into everything by any means. So this is not going to capture the intricate work that Luke puts into sewing these works together. 
But just to highlight some key moments, some key points from each work as we approach both with this six section breakdown. So it goes like this. This is the six sections that we're going to talk through it. Birth, identity, stories, trial, tragedy, victory. And I think if we take Luke and then we take Acts and we break both of these down into these six sections and compare the two, you'll find some pretty interesting overlays between these two works. There's a whole lot more to be said, but we're going to just do a 30,000 foot bird's eye view of it all, starting with the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. So we start with this idea of birth. And when I say birth, what I mean is the moment the Holy Spirit intervenes with creation to make way for life in what would otherwise be a lifeless situation. That's a lot to be said. But this is the point that the Holy Spirit takes invisible action and does something to start new life. From the calming of the chaos waters in Genesis 1 to bringing forth a child in the virgin's womb in Luke chapter 1. Seven times in this beginning part, Luke mentions that the Holy Spirit is the invisible actor bringing life where life would not otherwise exist, both in the womb of Elizabeth and in the womb of Mary. Life that would not be possible without the intervention of the Holy Spirit. It is the birth story of God's action. And then after that, Luke's going to move into what he calls identity. In identity, what he's doing is he's proclaiming the purpose of the new life birth given through the Holy Spirit. Why did the Holy Spirit take this action in the first place? What's the rationale? What's the reasoning behind it? This is the purpose of identity. So following Jesus' baptism in Luke chapter 4, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And then Jesus goes 40 days in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. He makes his way back to his hometown and he stands up in the synagogue and he begins to preach. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 61 verses 1 and 2. So he gets up in front of his hometown and he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Again, Holy Spirit reference. So clear. The Holy Spirit is on me. Because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. To set free the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then Jesus goes and sits down in what tends to be or what Luke writes out is this really tense moment where everyone is staring at him wondering what on earth is he talking about. And then this controversial child of Mary surrounded in scandal looks at the crowd and says, I'm the fulfillment of that passage. That's my identity. That's why I'm here. That's why I was born. This is who I am. It's the clear proclamation of identity, claiming the purpose of the birth. And from there, Luke's going to go into the bulk of his gospel, and he's going to give you story after story of that identity put into action. It's the narrative proof of Jesus's identifying claim. Stories like healing at Capernaum or giving sight to the blind man multiple times, freeing a woman from a disability, story after story, proving that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Still, that claim does not go unchallenged. In fact, Jesus's identity pretty regularly got him into trouble with the religious officials, which accumulated in trial. The the moment where the narrative proof, all the stories of identity seem to be put on pause and called into question. When the stories are hindered and something else is brewing in the background. So a false charge is brought against Jesus where he's arrested and he's bounced back and forth between Roman court and Jewish court. 
Starts with the high priest in the Sanhedrin and then they move him to the governor Pontius Pilate who then moves him back to King Herod Antipas who then moves him back to the governor Pilate bouncing back and forth. And Pilate not knowing what to do because he feels like this man has done nothing warranting any sort of punishment but also understanding that he has a mob forming on his hand decides to wash his hands of the matter and say whatever the mob wants they can have. And the people take Jesus and they crucify him. The trial rather rapidly moves from just a hindered story with a hiccup in it to an ended story. The dashed expectations given everything that's led up to this moment. I think in a lot of ways that's what tragedy is. That everything Luke's led up to is we expect some glorious revealing. Surely this Messiah isn't going to die. Messiahs don't die. They conquer. That's not going to be what happens. And then your expectations are dashed as Jesus dies on the cross. Tragedy sets in. All of the glorious expectations through the birth and the identity and the stories the, the wondrous excitement of Elizabeth and Mary singing worship songs and celebrating babies in womb. The swelling anticipation of fulfillment of ancient prophets coming to fruition. The unforgettable stories of healing and miracles. It all crashes into chaos. And instead, we find the once celebrating Mother Mary now grieving, weeping at the sight of her promised son, the Savior of Israel, naked and nailed to a cross. The disciples who watched Jesus accomplish things they could have never dreamed possible now scattered in fear. This promising, wonderful start shattered into a disorienting ending. And you and I, we, we know the whole story. But in that moment, if we could go back to just that short time in history, no one expected resurrection. Peter denies ever knowing him. Judas, destroyed by his own guilt, can't find a way out and takes his own life. Thomas takes off on his own and ignores all of his friends that he had spent three years working with. The women go and they prepare burial spices because they're getting ready for a funeral. No one is thinking of resurrection. They are too gut punched by the tragedy of darkness. But luckily we know there's one final chapter. Victory. The moment the tragedy fully realized is by the power of God turned upside down to an unhindered story of victory. The, the moment everything is redeemed, the moment the cross becomes the tool by which Jesus does not die, he defeats death. That it wasn't just an object of torture, it was simultaneously an object of redemption. That he doesn't just carry the bar of the cross. He actually carries the world's sufferings and sin as he's nailed to the cross. The twist ending that nobody could have ever dreamed up is that the darkest, most tragic moment actually became the most powerful moment. And knowing this, I think, is the only way we can make sense of Acts. So let's do it all over again. This time through the book of Acts. We'll go fast. We start with the concept of birth. All over again, the moment the Holy Spirit intervenes within creation to make way for life in an otherwise lifeless situation. These beaten down, defeated disciples that are just ordinary men are told, wait, it will come. And once again, the story opens with the Holy Spirit invisibly acting. Jesus promises you're going to receive power 
when the Holy Spirit falls on you. And although this time it's not on an empty womb, there's a sudden spark of life in an ordinary room with ordinary men filled with the sudden flame of power. And it's not the birth of a person, but it's the new birth of individuals forming the birth of a new community. It is the birth of the church directly paralleled with the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 1. And then we get into identity. If Jesus is born by the Holy Spirit and there's an identifying prophetic voice that says, here's his purpose, could we find the same thing in Acts? Well, sure enough, when Peter goes to preach at Pentecost, he quotes, not from Isaiah this time, but from Joel. And he says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And he goes on from there. But what do you expect comes next in the stories? It's the fulfillment of that identity. See, the stories are the identity put into action. It's the narrative proof. So we're coupled with the extension of Jesus' claim from Isaiah 61. We find the church doing everything that Jesus did and now doing this as well. Peter and Paul have visions. The apostles work miracles through the Holy Spirit. Philip's daughters prophesy, and there's way more. But do you see what Luke is doing? Luke, like the rest of the biblical authors, is a literary genius. I think so often we miss. When we see this book, it's just some old book from thousands of years ago that we read, but it's kind of antiquated by now, and we've already... Pre- do you guys understand how intelligent and sophisticated this is? Luke was not just writing struck by a lightning bolt and comes back to him. He's like, I think this is a pretty good work. We'll go ahead and send it in. Every line is intentional. It's weaved together to match and to help you remember who Jesus is and what he is doing. And then towards the end, Luke kind of shifts his story from talking about the early church as a whole to really talking more about the apostle Paul. Shifting from a third person to even a first person perspective at times because he himself went on some of the missionary journeys with Paul. And it's actually Paul's trial that's overlaid with Jesus's trial. The moment where the narrative proof of identity is put on pause and the identity is called into question. That the story is hindered and there's a false charge conspired against Paul and he's arrested and put on trial. He first appears in front of the high priest in the Sanhedrin, who then bounces him, or he gets bounced to the governor of Rome, Felix, who holds him actually for a couple years. It's prolonged here. Until a new governor comes in, Governor Festus, who actually takes him to the predecessor of King Herod, King Agrippa, who then eventually bumps him to Rome itself. And and the anticipation swells because in almost every story before this that Luke has told us where the apostle is arrested and jailed shortly after follows this wonderful story of rescue. Surely this is the point where Paul breaks into the capital, the bars are shaken loose, and he has full access to Rome. And the expectations are dashed. Because tragedy sets in as we find out Paul is chained and he's shipped off And although there's a disastrous shipwreck and he somehow survives, even when he makes it to Rome against all odds, he's locked away on house arrest and nobody seems to take him seriously. And there we find that Paul is never set free. And he dies. Look, that's not how that story is supposed to go. I mean, such a promising start of thousands coming to faith and joining this movement, such a disorienting ending. 
as the de facto leader sits in prison while people leave disagreeing with what he's saying. And Luke ends his gospel here. Or his work of Acts here. And I think he's lingering this, this point, this question and saying, well, where's the victory? Wait a minute, Luke. If there was a victory in your gospel, surely there's supposed to be a victory right here in Acts. And it's almost as if Luke, tongue in cheek, is saying, you fill in the blank. What do you think the victory is going to be? Could it be that this one word, akalutos, is just a blank space inviting you to join in with what Luke expects, given what he knows about his Savior? That the victory is not spelled out. It's opened up. That it's a prediction of how God can and will use trial and tragedy to write stories of redemption across the walls of history. Because Luke's saying the Trojan horse is inside the the walls of Rome. And you can fret and you can worry that the story is over. Or you can trust that God has something that Luke can't even imagine in store. So Luke looks at it. And I think what Luke says is even though this story looks like it's hindered, I know the story that led to this one. And it cannot be hindered. Nothing can stop this. The gospel is unhindered. Nothing stands against it. Because here's the thing you may not know. The reason you're here this morning is because for over 2,000 years, despite conspiracies and governmental attempts to stop this movement, despite spiritual oppositions and evil and sin, despite what the news said or what laws are or are not passed, despite any trial or tragedy you have ever seen or experienced, God is never hindered. He cannot be hindered. And so we land seeing that Luke's ending is not absurd. He's very aware of what he's doing. It's an intentional invitation. That you, in fact, are invited to participate in the unhinderable story of God's love for the world displayed in Jesus. And you're invited not to just know that story as some intellectual knowledge, but to live into that story as a personal reality for you. Because the thing is, you can actually take these six things and you can put your life into it. Because if if you know Jesus, then you've experienced the Holy Spirit new beginning of birth. The power of God bringing life to an otherwise lifeless situation. Redemption, renewal, that God comes in and then he puts an identity on you from that birth. A stamp of purpose, of redemption. I have saved them for. And that can be generalized as a son and daughter of God. It can be a specific calling that you know God's put on your life. And then you begin to live into that. And story after story, event after event, thing after thing that you look back and you can say, this is the narrative proof of what God has called me. We call this testimony. But it's just looking back and saying, I know this is what God has called me to. But here's the thing. There's a good chance you'll also find trial. You'll find times where it feels like the story's put on pause and things are called into question. Is my identity real? And that can be caused by sin in your own life. It can be caused by sin outside. We'll talk about all this in further detail as we move forward over the next few weeks. But you can't expect trial. And you very well may encounter tragedy. When the expectations of how you thought your life was going to go are just dashed to oblivion. And Luke comes in and says, even when all of that happens, you should know 
Nothing can hinder what God has done because he has already claimed the victory. The resurrection has happened. Victory is unhindered. I spent the last week up at times that I usually am not up and awake. That's just kind of par for the course at this point, I think. Some really weird thoughts that go through your brain at that point. You're just not used to being up at 3 o'clock in the morning rocking a crying baby. So I find myself bouncing forth between praying and thinking and praying and sometimes dozing off and being like, I'm not supposed to doze off with a kid asleep on my chest. That's like rule number one of babies and all of that stuff. But I've really been thinking this last week and I'll just confess. There are moments when I look at my son and I ask the question, what kind of world is he going to grow up in? And I land in this really concerning pit. Because I look around and sometimes it really feels like this machine we call Christianity is just breaking down all around us. Every year it seems research shows more and more people are leaving the church, not coming into the church. There seems to be a harder and harder push from media and culture to normalize things that historically have been taboo or at least that the Bible calls sin. And it's really hard for me having a son and looking at the world he's going to grow up in to not want to run, pull a fire alarm and start freaking out. Everything's gone wrong. In fact, I had to rewrite the part, this part of my sermon about nine times because it kept coming across like an angry old man mad about the world. And I think that's part of fatherhood too. I'm not sure. But despite all of that, I can't help but come back to this. Because it's worth remembering this movement, this movement of the Messiah started at the resurrection from the dead is much, much bigger than our tiny demographic and our tiny little place in time. There's a book by an author and a pastor named A.J. Swoboda. It's called After Doubt. In this book, he writes this, talking about this very thing. He says, for every millennial, and we could probably insert the phrase Gen Z now, it's a couple years old. But he says, for every millennial, and, uh, for every millennial affluent white college student, isn't that a fun phrase? Millennial white affluent college student. That's what you want to read. For every millennial affluent white college student who is choosing to deconstruct their Christian faith, there are five non-white people in the world who are finding the Bible in great message, uh, finding in the Bible the greatest message the world could ever imagine. And there are numbers to back that up. There's a 2022 study, so just last year, that notes that the largest population of Christians in the world are actually in Africa. And the the majority of those Christians in Africa are actually women under the age of 19. They're teenagers. So if we were actually to take a bag and put all the Christians in the world, statistically, you're most likely to pull out a teenage girl from Nigeria. And I know sometimes it really does feel like this thing that we're a part of, this thing that we love is being stripped for parts by people that call themselves ex-evangelicals and are trying their best to get on podcasts and talk about how messed up the church is. And I know sometimes it can really feel like the American church in particular is just swimming in scandal and it's marred beyond repair by politicians and televangelists and insert whatever pastors hurt you in the past. But all of that to say... It has not hindered the gospel. Because the same Christian movement Luke called unhindered in the face of extreme hindrance is still unhindered across this world. 
So you need to know that while in our world, in our little, little time span that we have, things might seem concerning and you might turn on the news and get really, really disheartened. Luke's invitation at the end of his gospel rests on this one word, unhindered. That you belong to, I belong to, we belong to something much bigger than us. Something much bigger than this room, something much bigger than this church, something much bigger than this town, something much bigger than even this nation. We belong to the story of redemption that God has laid out from the start of time and he has declared it to be unhindered. So what do you do about it? I'll confess I didn't really put a lot of application into this sermon because for me it's not necessarily about application just yet. We'll we'll get there. But for now it's about this. Maybe you are just trapped in the turmoil of trial and tragedy and you're feeling like everything has gone off course and we can't do anything about it. The de facto leader of the church is sitting at home in a house prison cell and we're left wondering what happened at the beginning when thousands of people were getting saved. And the only thing I can come and tell you is Luke looks at his first story. He looks at his story and he looks forward to you and says, but it's unhindered. Do you believe that? Do you believe this story is unhindered? Might that look like us stop running and frantic about all of the things gone wrong and awry in America today and actually start saying, God, we trust your story is unhindered. Let us live into it. And then to see what an unhindered story can do in Portales, New Mexico. And maybe you don't know this story at all, and you just need to start at that birth. The Holy Spirit, God himself, through the sacrifice of Jesus, is offering you life in an otherwise lifeless situation. That if you come put your faith in him, he will bring you to new life again. And you can start this story of identity and change and victory. But what is your part in living into this unhindered story? Father God, we thank you for what you're doing. God, even when things in this world look like they're marred beyond repair and broken, when we look around and think that we've surely lost this and the cart's gone off the tracks, that you look around and you say, the end is not unwritten. That you have actually written it. It is an ending of victory and wonder, and there's nothing hindering that ending. So God, give us the ability the knowledge to see what it means to live in this resurrection mindset, to know that even when darkness sets in, even when trial abounds, that the victory is there and the gospel is unhindered. God, let us be a church that proclaims that in loving faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.